0: Of a serial
1: killer, hey guys, and welcome to Secrets of a Serial Killer. Um, I'm Janice Oakley, and this is my son I'm Nick Adams, yep, Nicholas Adams. And he is gonna, um, we are going to be profiling basically two serial killers each week. We're each going to pick one, um, and we're going to delve into all the the things that they've done and just cover just basically an overview of each one of our serial killers. And then we're going to do a little something different and include some secrets of that particular serial killer um, and have like some facts that are little known to the public. Um, things that you would find interesting about each each serial killer. Um, today, I'm going to be doing Ted Bundy.
2: And I am going to be doing John George Hagen, the acid bath
0: killer.
1: So basically, we thought it might be good to start off with a notorious serial killer like Ted Bundy and then one maybe that you haven't heard of. So um, we're going to, I guess, delve right into Ted Bundy and do him first, Nick, or would you like to do yours first? Which one? Let's do, do like?
2: Ted first since he's the bigger serial killer of the two.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about Ted Bundy. He is uh, one of the most notorious serial killers of the 20th century. Most everybody knows who he is um, just by his name. And we're going to do just like a little chronological thing. So he was born in um, November 24th, 1946, and he was actually born Theodore Cowell, Um, and he was born in Burlington, Vermont. Um, His mother was named Eleanor Louise Cowell, and the reason he was born in Vermont, his family wasn't from, from Vermont, but his mother was unwed at the time. Her family lived in Pennsylvania, and during that time period, you kind of have to think back the way things were. Being um, unmarried and being pregnant was frowned upon, especially in the communities. Um, uh, the, the parents would, you know, basically send the daughter away. There was houses for unwed mothers is what they were called. So this particular house was in Burlington, Vermont. So her parents were very upset that she was pregnant, They sent her off to this house of unwed mothers in um, Burlington, Vermont, and this is where Ted was born. Um, The father is basically unknown. There was a couple of different people they thought could be the father, but he really did not know who his biological father was. Um, His mother had him and came back home. Um, He was supposed to be adopted. So just imagine this. So anyone out there could have adopted Ted Bundy and maybe even wouldn't have been a serial killer. Who knows? But his grandfather and grandmother decided they wanted to raise him. So a couple of months after he was born, they went back and got him and they wanted Eleanor to um, raise, to pretend to be a sister, basically, instead of his mother. So they raised him as their own son and he believed that his mother was his sister, So it's already starting off on some twisted stuff. Right. You know, he wasn't wanted. um, He didn't have a father in the picture. And now he's being raised by grandparents and he thinks his mom's a sister. So we start off kind of, you know, a little rocky as it is. Um, And this is the 1950s. So Eleanor, who was a sister, took him and decided to move to Tacoma, Washington. So we're talking about from East Coast to West Coast. And supposedly, and this is something I just found out today that they moved in with some of her cousins. Um, so they fled basically from the home because um, of a fa- the father um, allegedly abusing both of them physically. So she took him in and went to um, Tacoma to start back over. There she met a man named Johnny Culpepper Bundy, hence the name Bundy. And uh, he was a hospital cook, and they end up getting married. Um, And he adopted Ted and gave him his name, and that's how he became Ted Bundy. So, um, some of the first things they noticed about young Ted was that he had an obsession with knives. Um, His behavior was a little odd. If he wanted something, he would just take it. And this followed basically into his teenage years. Um, He was got in trouble several times for theft, for taking things. They were just a working class family. So there's a lot of things that he wanted. And he would just take from others and didn't seem to bother him one bit. He also had this fascination with um, voyeurism or peeping. So he got in trouble several times for peeping um, into people's windows. um, But nothing that put him on the radar for police until, of course, later on in life. There's actually a I don't know that Ted actually told this, but there was actually a lot of um, thoughts that maybe he started killing as young as 14 years old. So he didn't necessarily um, admit to that, but that is when they believe he started. Um, Those weren't actually anything that he was ever held responsible for, but that's kind of where they they believe it all began. So fast forward a little bit into him um, graduating from school. I mean, Nick, did you want to say anything about his younger years. Is there anything that you know of that you want to throw in there? I know one time we talked about, he would go back and say how he was such a athlete and how he was so um, popular in school and things like that. And
2: they said that he was standing in the doorway at like three, at like really late at night and had placed knives around. Mm -hmm. I think it was either his mother or some other female, but they were saying that he like laid knives around the, bed like around her body placed them like that and he would just sit there and like smile and stare at them
1: and that was when he was real young
2: three or four
1: yeah that's that's definitely you know but in that time period there was people didn't know about serial killers they certainly didn't know anything about the profile of the one you know or be alarmed when something like that happened they'd say you know just being boys or he he's just a little weird or a little off or whatever well, I don't think that he was super like popular in school or athletic like he tried to play on. I think that was more of a persona that he tried to keep up when he got uh, to be an adult. But um, fast forward to, high, to college, basically. I know he had attended a smaller college, but in 1972, he actually went to the University of Washington. And he ended up getting his psychology degree. Um, And he was he was an intelligent man. Um, He was actually accepted into law school in Utah, but he never did complete law school. Um, While he was at the University of Washington, he fell in love with a woman named Diane Edwards um, and Diane Edwards. Now, she had money. She had class. She had influence. She came from an influential family. These are all things that Ted wanted growing up. In fact, I just thought about something when they asked him about his stepdad. He never really said anything bad about him. He just said that he um, was poor and he just couldn't afford nice things. He seemed to be very um, fixated on money and power and influence He never say anything bad about the He just almost like he felt like he was better than him um, because he couldn't afford nice things. Um, but he met Diane Edwards and she was a small, petite, um, like I said, wealthy, uh, long, dark haired, socialite in, in the, um, college. And when they broke up, uh, it was said that Ted was devastated by the breakup. And this is supposedly one of the reasons why he targeted women, um, that, that looked a lot like Diane Edwards, long, dark hair, small, petite, you know, that age group. Um, so he went on, uh, to work in, during the 1970s. He actually worked on the governor's campaign so, I mean, he was up and coming to be somebody. Um, he had actually gotten a letter from the governor for uh, recommending him, just talking about how great a, um, he had done on helping with the campaign. Um, so that's just crazy. <laughs> um, he traveled from Washington to Utah, Utah and in those states between. And during that time when he traveled, those states started missing women. They, they started having women, young women becoming missing in Seattle and in Oregon, Utah. Uh, stories during that time period began circulating um, of witnesses that had last seen um, their girls or their women that were missing with a dark haired man. And he would actually use his real name. He'd say, hey, I'm Ted. And so other people would even say, yeah, they, they left with a dark haired man named Ted. Um, he had a little brown Volkswagen Beetle, which is his infamous car. He used that. Um, throughout um, his murders, until he was taken to prison the first time, Um, so that was, uh, yeah, it's just like, oh, yeah, we just saw him leave with Ted, so it was real, I don't know, suspicious, but he did use his real name. Um, His MO, I guess you'd say, is that he needed, um, he would use, like, he needed help from them, so these women would see a young, handsome, educated man, um, and he's very charming, and he would sometimes use crutches or put his arm in a sling, you know, to appeal to their, um, feeling sorry for him or, um, wanting to help them. He would sometimes carry a bunch of books and have his arm in a sling and he would drop the books or whatever, anything he could do to get their attention or to get them to trust him or any of that. That's kind of what he would do. And then he would lure them into his vehicle. And then from that point on, um, Uh, let's just say all, but uh, maybe one person ever survived. So let's see. And that person is Carol DeRanche, and that was 1975. So she actually was shopping at a mall and, um, she was approached by a man who identified himself as a detective and said there was a problem with her car. Like someone had attempted to steal it or something like that. And so he was, you know, well-mannered and she believed him and she went with him. And when she did, she, she it actually actually watched a documentary on her and her story. And she said that she trusted what he said. You know, you trusted authority in the 70s. Um, she was going with him to go down to the police station um, to find out, you know, what had happened with her car. And she said the only thing that really set off an alarm was when they were walking out to his car. It was a Volkswagen Beetle and not like a police car or something like that. And he, um, you know, blew it off and said, Oh, yeah, I'm, under, I'm in my personal car today or something. And so she went ahead and got in the vehicle. Now, once she got in the vehicle, things immediately snapped, like changed. He attempted he put handcuffs on her. He attempted to hit her with a crowbar. Somehow or another, I don't know how but she was able to get away from him. And she's the only person that that is actually known to have gotten away from him and was able to actually go and um, tell the police what had happened. So he actually fled from that scene, and um, he wasn't caught for, uh, it was. I think it was a good amount of time that he actually had that, she ha- had that happen to her, and then he was actually caught. And the only reason he was caught is because he was pulled over by police. So they had the description of the vehicle, and there was a lot of them during the 70s, A lot of people had these cars, and his happened to be like a bronzy brown color, so um, I guess that's what they were looking for. They pulled him over, and sure enough, old Ted had crowbar, a mask in there, um, some rope, some gloves, and so they arrested him for possession of burglary tools, and this was like um, August sixteenth, 1975, so they weren't able to actually at that point, charge him with Mrs. Durant's, um, abduction, but they had needed some time. And a lot of times police will do this. Um, if they have anything else they can charge him with, it's a lesser crime to hold him to keep him from being out on the streets. Um, that's what they'll do. So they charge him with possession of burglary tools and then they worked, um, around the clock to try to link him to the abduction of Carol. Now he actually, um, was charged with, uh, abducting Carol and was, um, Let's see. I think he was actually charged with or actually convicted of aggra- aggravated abduction, which is kind of an understatement considering she, he tried to hit her in the head with the crowbar, but that's what he was charged with. And he actually got sentenced to 15 years. So that was his first time he was found guilty. Um, during that time period, there were investigators in, in the three States we talked about Washington, um in Utah and Colorado, they were all um trying to connect Ted with these unsolved murders that they had. I mean they're they're basically finding bodies every you know all over the place. Um he didn't have any specific place that he would dump bodies anywhere from the woods to you know on the side of the road that kind of thing. It didn't really matter. There was not a, a rhyme or reason to that. But in let's see, I think it's December 30th, December 30th, 1977. Now he's been charged with this and he is defending himself and some of these other, um, murder cases. And he thought that he was, um, he would make his own defense because he had, you know, aspired to be a lawyer, an attorney. And people say that he really did a great job. He's very charismatic, handsome, um, smart. And he, Did a good job. Nick, didn't you say something too? you were telling me about what the judge said to him?
2: Well, that's later on when he's uh, in Florida, when the judge says what he says to him. Oh,
1: Gotcha. So we, you tell me about that. then when that's, that's actually after he, some other time passes. So he is in there and this is the, like I said, the 30th of December um, in 1977 and he's in Folsom prison. He is, um, defending himself so he asked to go to the law library and he actually was it was during a trial for a Colorado woman. He he is going to the law library and he actually jumped out a window um and escaped from Folsom prison that way. Um, that he was caught after eight days and thank goodness there's no reported who knows he might have this a long time eight days but there's no reported murders during that time. So they caught up with him pretty quickly. Um, but it was not, but a few months later, um, he actually was in Folsom prison and he's one of the very few people that's been able to escape from there. Um, he actually, um, made a hole in the corner of his ceiling in his um, cell and the hole, the opening was not, but so large, he wasn't able really to fit through it. So he went and I mean, he was determined he lost 30 pounds so that he could push his way through the opening and they say that he took books and he was always getting books to read um, a law books and everything, and put them in his bed to look like that he was sleeping. So this actually was really smart and it bought him some time. He was missing for 15 hours before anyone at the prison noticed. So he had quite the jump on them, you know, and by the time he, they, they realized he's missing, he had a big head start. <clears throat> excuse me. So he made his way to Tallahassee, Florida. Now this was, I guess this was from December. So he really did not waste any time. No, no, I lied. That was the next year. So we're talking about, I'm not sure exactly how many months into 1977, but by 1978, he was in Tallahassee, Florida, and he was at the University of, well, actually Florida State. And this is the one of the um, things that Ted is known for. He actually broke into the, um, let me see which sorority house was, uh, Chi Omega sorority house in Florida State. The women that were in the sorority house were mostly sleeping. They had just come back from winter break. Um, he attacked four of them and ended up killing two of them. And two were actually able to escape. He was actually able to escape. And then went on the next month, which was February 9th, he killed a 12-year-old. And I believe this is the youngest victim that we know of, named Kimberly Leach. Um, she's in that same area. At the end of late, um, February, police pulled him over again. So the last crimes he committed was killing a Tim, Kimberly Leach that we know of. Um, so police pulled him over, and they say took him. To, he went without incident Um And they took him back to jail. Now, during his trial um, and he acted as his own attorney, they said he thought he was a celebrity, that he was all over the news and people just thought he was, um, you know, doing such a great job. And this is when he was actually doing what we talked about, the going through the trial for killing the women in Florida. And so that was where the judge said what you're talking about, Nick.
2: Yep. So what ended up happening is while he was in his you know, case in Florida right before he got sentenced for the last time. The judge literally looked him in the eye and said, I would have actually would have loved to have you. You would have made an amazing lawyer.
1: Hmm. So he did a good job. I mean, it, of course, the evidence was overwhelming against him. But for a judge to give you a compliment like that, that you do such a a good job, it's really kind of sad because, you know, like, hey, if you weren't a serial killer and you weren't, you know, a murderer, then maybe you would make a heck of an attorney. You know, it's just crazy. Well, he went on to get a life sentence, of course. And um, he actually, during that time period after the life sentence, he confessed to killing 36 women, which was more than what authorities actually knew. And it's it's not 100% sure how many women he killed his MO was that he liked to rape them and then beat them to death. Um, he wasn't a, he didn't usually shoot people or anything like that. He liked it to take a while. And then he had nine years in um, on um, death row. And during that time period, I'm, I'm almost certain that the death penalty had kind of been on the back burner. They hadn't been um, putting people to death and, once they had some politicians come in that reinstated the death penalty he was one of the very first ones to get the death penalty like it's almost like they were making a statement by saying they picked five different men five of the ones that were the most horrendous murderers and which is kind of crazy because most of them were probably the most mentally ill those were the ones that they they gave the electric chair, which he actually got the electric chair in Florida, and that, that was considered old Sparky. It was infamous electric chair. It actually had a nickname. So he was um, given the electric chair on January 24th, 1989. Um, a lot of people that you know looked into um, Ted and I studied him all said that that it was a disservice that he actually got the death penalty because there's so many things we could have learned from him and from researching um doing testing on the on the brain and different things that we could learn more about serial killers so sad thing is that they only had nine years and there was very little that no that they know that he didn't tell them um so Uh, We were actually, and this is something I'm going to talk about too. We were actually watching a a documentary and it's a really great documentary from uh, 2020. It's called crazy, not insane. And it features uh, a psychiatrist named Dorothy Lewis. And she was very controversial during the seventies and the eighties. And a lot of times people thought she was on the serial killer sides. um, But she actually has a lot of insight Um, into the minds of serial killers, and what causes things, and basically believes that serial killers are not born, that we, they're situational, they're environmental, they are, they are victims of trauma, and that kind of thing, so um, she's one of the ones who said that she felt like it was a disservice that he, um, that he had not been further studied, you know, so, during our podcast, we want to definitely get all the secrets. So we got some secrets for you from, from, for Ted, some things that maybe people didn't know, especially um, with Ted being so charismatic and everything. uh, Most people don't know that he grew up with a speech impediment. I mean, he struggled with it. Um, And that he actually was um, very close with his grandfather. And now this man was named Simon um, Cowell. (laughs) Which is funny, not not to be confused with the one from American Idol or anything like that. But his granddad, according to fellow family members, now Ted really never said anything bad about his granddad, but fellow family members actually said that he was abusive and um, that he would physically beat um, Ted and beat Ted's mother and uh, that he just ruled with an iron fist. And so there's some things we didn't know about him. There's also a lot of um, things said about his granddad that he possibly sexually abused Ted, but he definitely exposed him to porn, to watching porn. And a lot of that porn was, of course, um, very violent porn. So we did know at least that. Now, we were talking about Dorothy Lewis before. Dorothy Lewis actually had on her um, documentary that she thought that maybe... Ted was um, that his grandfather was actually maybe his father, insinuating that maybe um, Ted's granddad had um, raped his his mother, and they actually were able to rule that out with some DNA tests. But that was always something that they were thinking that could possibly you know could be a possibility. So they never did figure out who his biological father's were. Father was so there was at least two men that. Um, that they named, but neither one of them uh, were, you know, like I said, in his life or um, taking care of him. Another thing was that he, of course, grew up thinking his mother was a sister and didn't actually know that she was his mother, biological mother, till he hit adulthood. So that's some twisted stuff there. I mean, to think all this time, you don't even know who you are or who your mother is to you, you know, that had to be psychologically damaging to him. Um Dr. Lewis actually interviewed in like 1989 um his mother, um, who was still alive at the time, and she said, Ted's mother, she just said, quote, um, I will be glad when this is over, end quote. So basically um dr lewis was like i can't even imagine a mother saying that you know it's like well the sooner they fry ted the better basically is how she feels about it so that kind of shows you what kind of relationship his how his mother was towards him if she was ready to be done with him that's just something else and she did also the mother say that her father her father had actually taken her to a doctor and she was given what was called an abortion pill and so there's no telling This abortion pill obviously didn't work because Ted was born, but this abortion pill could have caused all kinds of problems, you know, with the development of the baby in in utero. So you're talking about, there's no telling what kind of damage was done to Ted while he was, you know, while she was pregnant with him. Um, Something you may not know about Ted is that he decapitated 12 of his victims, I don't usually talk about that. Everybody talks about how charming he is. He actually kept those heads of those women as souvenirs. So I don't know at what point in time they figured that out, or if he even ever disclosed that to them, and that's how they found out. But he did twelve bodies. Another thing he liked to do was to groom the bodies. um, You know, brush their hair, make you know, make them look nice and everything, and then he. Wherever he had them at, he would continue to go back and visit the scene of the crime and rape that victim after postmortem until the body was too ravaged with, by animals to, to, do, to do anything with. That's just so twisted. Um, something else you might not know about him is that he actually offered help to the FBI to catch Gary Ridgway, who was the Green River killer. Um, he had suggested to the FBI that the Green River killer may return to the scene of the crime. Isn't that right, Nick? And Yes. And what happened with that? I mean, did he return to the scene of the crime? It, no. They. they go ahead.
2: They stayed out there for two weeks because Bundy was upset that somebody was going to surpass his body count. And so he told them that the guy might come back and do things to the body which he does but for this time around for some weird reason he didn't i don't know if that was the time period where the guy interrupted gary when he walked out of the woods and told him there was a serial killer on the loose and that's (laughs) why he didn't go back or another reason but they waited out there for two weeks and the guy never showed back up so
1: i didn't know that the only reason he decided to help fbi was because he didn't want gary ridgeway to have killed more women than him that's crazy and that's something he's worried about his his, his count of victims
2: because hmm. well, he wants to be the most notorious
1: oh yeah of course that's just that's bizarre so some more bizarre details is that ted actually modified that volkswagen beetle he had he actually took the seat out the front passenger seat and removed the inside door handle so that whenever he got the woman into the vehicle and closed the door, she had no escape. She was not able to. She actually was laying down because there was no seat there in the floor, in the um, floor, basically. And so if he was able to hit her with a crowbar or to knock her unconscious, she could lay there and he could just drive. And no one even know that he had a, 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 someone knocked out laying in this car. And they were uh, weren't unable to escape from him because he was that he removed the door handle. So he was really thinking ahead on that one. Um, also, and this is kind of funny. So you always think of the serial killer as being a horrible person from start to finish. So Ted had actually some good qualities. Um, in 1970s, and I'm not sure. I think it's early 70s. He actually worked as a suicide prevention counselor, and he was he was um, recognized for saving countless lives of people who want to commit suicide. And that is just bizarre for me to think that he was such a good counselor that he was able to keep people from hurting themselves, you know, and ending their lives. Um, He also was a hero. I mean, who knew he saved a three-year-old little boy who was drowning at a lake. I think it was in Seattle called green Lake. Um, He they said that he just ran right in the water and saved this little boy without even hesitating one bit. So he was actually a hero. So I don't know what happened along the way, but he did have some good um, things that he did, too, which, you know, (sighs) far out far underway, the bad. But okay, another thing that he did was that he actually um, asked a witness named Carol Ann Boone. During his trial, she was on the witness stand and he asked her to marry him. And of course, I don't know what she said at that time period, but she ended up actually saying yes to him. And after he was sentenced, he, she actually had his a daughter one year later. So he has a daughter out there. Mm. Um, another thing that you may not know about Ted is that he um, described when he talked about his killings he described at one point um, to psychiatrists. psychiatrist actually it it was probably dr boone is who i'm thinking about that we were talking about before um, on crazy not not insane is that he described a dark entity um was killing his victims so i mean i don't know if you want to elaborate any more nicholas on what what you remember from that but Super, super scary. I mean, and, and it could be that he had multiple personalities, or could be that he, you know, just wanted to blame, you know, some other dark entity. And it's, oh, it's not Ted. Ted's great. Ted's this, but, you know, the dark entities who did that. I don't know which it was.
2: Ted separated himself. He kept telling, you know, Dr. Lewis that it was a dark entity and that he was watching from like the outside, like he was in control of himself, like a, Dr. Hmm. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of situation.
1: Oh, I could admit. And
2: yeah. they said the reason why he chose the victims he chose is because of his ex-girlfriend, Diana Edwards, and that he was in love with her. And, you know, she came from a class of high class and wealth and she really wanted what was best for Ted. He went to try to be a lawyer, but he just didn't score high enough and he wasn't doing good. So she pretty much kicked him to the curb, pissed him off. And as time progressed, I think he ended up, you know, doing better for himself, and then she tried to run back to him. He gave her another chance, and then he cut her off. I was like, oof, payback's a bitch.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, if if I was her, I would be thinking, like, thank goodness he didn't kill me. He just, you know, did this to all these other poor people. (sighs) Well, another um – Another – Yeah, go ahead. You tell me. Go
2: ahead. You go.
1: Oh, I was going to say another um, damning – Well, actually, one of the biggest pieces of damning evidence that they had on Ted with the um, killers at the Chai Omega house was that he actually bit one of his victims. He bit both of her buttocks. And so they had perfect bite mark impressions that they were able to use to compare to his bite, to his teeth. And that actually was the, he probably would not have, wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had a stronger case against him had they not had that physical evidence, um, you know, putting him there and putting his, his mouth on the the victim's buttocks, you know, so, and some of the twisted stuff, um, yeah. Uh, so, another thing that we didn't know was that he, you know, course, course wrote to Carol while they were married, and Carol actually turned over some letters to um, Dr. Lewis, that were uh, from uh, Ted. And it, a lot of times he would write, and he had two different handwritings. A lot of times he would write, you know, Love Ted, and it, he'd have his regular handwriting, but she would get some from him, and they would be a different, totally different handwriting, and he would sign them Love Sam or Sambo. He would refer to himself. And so, you know, she got she got all these things, of course, after he had been already, um, el- you know, electrocuted or whatever through, with old Sparky. But um, it would have been really interesting to know who Sam and Sambo was and why he referred to himself as that. Um, only other thing that I, I mean, and you said there was something else too, Nick. You had another something about Ted? You were going to tell her what Well, he
2: had he had some quotes like society wants you to believe it can identify evil people or bad or harmful people, but it's not practical. And yeah. he also told people that he was just a cold hearted son of a bitch and that he didn't feel guilty for anything.
1: Yeah. And that was a quote I was going to say too. Now there, there's one other thing before I tell you like his quote that like Nick was telling you, I got one quote that I feel sums up Ted bunny in in in, a, in one sentence, but Some contractors in 2016, years after he had passed, um, was actually doing some work at the Bundy home. And they said they they actually were there for seven months. And during that seven months, they had 30 different occurrences of voices, what they thought was paranormal activity. Uh, The voices would say things like, help me or leave. And there were so many workers that refused to go into the home um while they were doing the work on the home so I think it was like e- extreme contracting was the name of the contracting company but they were not they were not happy to work there I, I'm sure they're ready to finish up the job but they literally could <laughs> not keep workers in there so that makes you wonder like is it was it something that was affecting Ted or was it something that Ted left behind who knows so that dark entity thing it comes back to that who knows what the reason was But they actually reported they had people that would never go back in there again after they heard what they heard. But you were talking about that quote, so this is a quote I think fits Ted perfectly, and I'll just finish up with it. It says basically, quote, and this is what he said: "I don't feel guilty for anything. I feel sorry for people who feel guilt." End quote. And he signed that Ted. So that is him um, in a nutshell. So I think that's. Does he have any last words? (laughs) <laughs> he did have some last words and I'm sure you can tell him because you talking about right before he was um, put to death. Yeah. Yeah. You go ahead and tell me what he said. Cause I know he, it was short uh, and sweet. It wasn't anything theatrical.
2: I don't know exactly. I was just asking you if you knew. Oh, exactly yeah, I, I don't know exactly
1: say. what he said, but basically he's basically thanked his attorney and like two or other people, and that was it. He didn't say anything. Like, I'm sure people were just awaiting his last words to be something theatrical, but it wasn't. Literally, he just went and said, Thank you to my attorney. Thank you for that. And all the people. He called them out by name and he didn't say, My attorney, Nick, or nothing. He just said, Thanks to, you know, so and so and so and so and so and that was it. He was super quiet and that was it. Like, he is almost like he didn't give them what they expected you know from him they expected some charismatic speech or something they got nothing they just got a couple of uh, thank yous and stuff so um just to to kind of give credit where credits due some of the sources i used was a website called crammuseum.org got a lot of information on that um history.com of course you know we have tons of um information on ted out there through documentaries um, my sister actually provided us with a really nice book, Encyclopedia of Serial Killers. Um, I use that also. And then, of course, that documentary we talked about, Crazy, Not Insane, um, with Dr. Dor- um, Dorothy Lewis. It's on HBO. I encourage you guys to watch that, too. That's an awesome show. Um, and I'm finished up with Ted, so on to you, Nicholas.
2: I got one more thing to say about Ted, and this is coming from somebody else's mouth, Diane's mouth herself, mm-hmm. which I haven't heard about this anywhere else. But she actually did an interview with the guy named Dr. Al Carlisle, and he was a psychologist who studied Bundy and his convictions mm-hmm. and even published his findings in the violent mind in the 1976 psychology assessment of Ted Bundy. So we all know Ted is being cool, confident, charismatic, a nice guy. But what she actually did was dismantle everything we always thought about Bundy In her eyes. We don't know if it's true or not because we weren't there, but she said that he was weak and a real people pleaser. And when they would have arguments, he would be pitiful and weak and no tone to her. And that was her main criticism about him that he wasn't strong and he wasn't masculine, which that might play a part in his little lie of, mm-hmm. oh, I used to do sports. Probably yeah. not. Mm-hmm. And, and and if he got if she got mad at him, he did some things like felt apologetic about it and he wouldn't even stand up for himself.
0: Hmm. That's very so interesting. I, I don't know. Very, Maybe
2: very it's because he cared about her and loved her and that's why he like walked on eggshells because he didn't want to lose her. So I don't know exactly because it's kind of hard to believe that it's like, Oh, he didn't stand up for herself, but then he turned around and just like mutilated thirty six women. Like, come on. Well, now. maybe
1: that was where he had his control was when he was attacking people. If you think about it, he was probably demasculated, like put down and everything by his mother. If his his mother said, "I can't wait till this is over with," just basically saying fry Ted as soon as possible because it's inconvenient for me. Then obviously she didn't have any kind of empathy, which is the case with him too. He has none. So, yeah. maybe mom was like that we were no granddad was who knows who else talked down to him or put him down who knows you know and that affects a person so
2: yeah and that came off of wiki.ng that's where I just got that information from which I never knew anything about that at all but she's trying to keep her life as concealed as possible because obviously she's famous now in a way because she dated ted bundy and mm-hmm. kind of the reason why he was killing all the girls that looked as exactly like her or in a way look like her mm-hmm. so yeah i would want to be a private person too if i had to go through all that hell
1: yeah because there's you know he has where he has people that are you know not fans of his he had fans too i mean we had a woman that was willing to marry him and have children with him mm, so yeah I heard right. his daughter
2: keeps her life private too. Cause she I'll, doesn't want to be out there.
1: I wouldn't either. I mean, would you want to be a serial killer's daughter? I wouldn't want to be, you know, I would worry that maybe something genetic or something I was carrying, you know, come from my father's. Yeah. So I'm sure she wants to keep it sick, keep it secret. I wouldn't want to be bombarded with all the stuff from my dad.
2: Heck no. So, all right. So
1: well, that was awesome. That's, that's Ted Bundy.
2: That's, yep so our next killer that we have on the list was from a long time ago his name was john george hagan he was born july 24th 1909 in london england he killed about six people but possibly nine they don't know exactly coaching or shooting them and then emerging them in acid and he was hung on august 10th 1949 so john had a kind of a crappy childhood as well he grew up in a very strict religious household and a problem with those is sometimes when you force religion on a child when they become adults they end up going the wrong direction but like i said it's 1949 but john grew up in a very strict religious household and his parents were pie Mouth brethren which i don't know exactly what that means but the brethren i know what that is but i don't know His father lost his job at an electrical plant just like a few months before Hagen was born. So, due to their financial situation and them struggling, they ended up having to move. Hagen, his father demanded respect. His name was John, too. So, he wanted respect from his son and he wanted to make sure he followed the rules, regardless of what kind of measures he had to take in order to keep his son on the right track. His dad was a little bit. I want to say off, but he would try to scare his son. He had a scar that was on his forehead above his eye. And he told his son that he's been marked by the devil for sinning. And if he doesn't get his life together and he doesn't go down the right path, that he will end up with the same fate. And it scared Hagen. It really scared him. I would have scared too. I would have been like, Oh, fuck that. My dad's crazy. So, John was having a lot of dark thoughts and he couldn't express them to his parents because obviously they're going to be like, oh, you a demon. You need to get an exorcist or, you know, what crazy shit they've been saying to him. Who knows? So in 1920, he started drinking his own pee. And in the same year that he started private school, they think that it started developing to be a part of his sadomasochism, sadomasochism, Mm -hmm. early stages of it. People who enjoy urination may not have indicated of any mental health issues or disturbing dark thoughts but or underlining problems, but it's connected to humiliation. And the people who do urophagia may tie it with pain, humiliation, and associated with sexual gratification. John was plagued with a nightmare that haunted him. He saw crucifixes that turn into trees. And then it would start raining, pouring down on his head. And instead of water, it was blood pouring down on him. Oof. Sheesh. Mm. The trees started swinging back and forth like it was in the middle of a cyclone. But there was no wind. And the trees were bleeding from the bark. He was frozen in fear and couldn't scream. That's what I hate about dreams. Can't stand them. The Jesus looking man took a cup and filled it with the blood dripping from the tree and urged Hagen to drink it.
1: So, this is Hagen's dream?
2: Yeah. So, this is like the nightmare that he's having that he's seeing these crucifixes that are just turning into trees. And then, as he's walking through the forest, these trees mm-hmm. are bleeding blood through their bark. And it's raining on him, but instead of regular water, it's blood. And then he's frozen. Like all of a sudden his body just stops and he can't move and he can't scream. And this guy, go ahead.
1: Go ahead. So you think this is, this these dreams he's having is because his dad used religion to scare fear into him or to keep him behaving or whatever.
2: Most likely. So in a way I feel like it's a little bit connected, but I think also church having something to do with it. And I'll get there in just a moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: but the guy, he looked like Jesus looked like a really like deformed Jesus. He would take a cup and put it against the tree and then let the blood run into the cup until it was full. And then he would hand it to John and urge him to drink it. And then he would wake up. It terrified mm-hmm. him and then dominated his thoughts. He did communion every Sunday. And he was told that the wine in his cup was the blood of Christ. So that could all, Also play a role in it too. You're having these nightmares of this Jesus evil figure, like an evil Jesus coming up to you, handing Mm -hmm. you a cup of blood. And you know, now you're being told when you're awake at church that hey, your wine is the blood of Jesus. So I could see where it scared him real badly. Mm. But he used his religion, pain, and love, and he combined them all together, and it was just not a good, good thing. He loved his dad but he was scared to like get on his bad side and he never mentioned the nightmares or any of his feelings towards him at all. He got really good at lying at school. His parents rather keep up appearance than moralities. So they rather keep up the Christian. Oh, we're a good family type of persona than to, Hey, look, we're not actually that great. And we struggle as humans as well. So that was the problem as well. I mean, he sang in the choir and everybody loved it. And as long as he keeps up the looks and speaking of a Christian, they would treat him as such neighbors, other churchgoers, family members. In 1926, he graduated and he worked out as a mechanic. He hated it. He rather make money and not do a lot of work for it. So he rather work a little bit and make a lot of money. So he wanted to be rich by barely doing any work at all, which that's not how life works at all. Right. He worked for an insurance company, and then while he was 21, he was assigned to a construction project in Africa with a big payout. So he loved the feeling of luxury and getting paid for barely any work at all. He found out the only way to make more and do less work was to steal it. Mm. Huh. He started stealing from his job to the point that his boss was starting to realize that a lot more money was missing because he was starting getting more bolder. But since they didn't have no concrete evidence to pinpoint John as the culprit, everybody knew either way, they just couldn't hundred percent prove it. But the boss knew his coworkers knew and they just fired him. So he was humiliated about that, but it's sad. The embarrassment bothered him. He started a business while he was staying at his parents Due to the stress of church and running a business, he dated actively. As a handsome man, he was in high demand, but he didn't settle down until he met a 21-year-old woman named Beatrice Hammer. She was too good for him. She was headstrong. She paid her bills. She did everything she needed to do. God, where are you at? I need you in my life. They dated for months until 1934. They got married and then got a home together. So he moved out of his parents' house. And moved in with her, and they had their own place, so he could get away from that lifestyle that he didn't want to have. His parents hoped that he would settle down and be a good Christian boy. Hm. Weren't they mm. wrong? He stopped going to church altogether, so his parents thought hell he picked hell over salvation. Yeah. Mm. Now with the wife, and now he needs more money to support not himself but her. He went from being a petty thief. To a con artist. So he was looking through the newspaper and saw that this guy actually conned a dealership out of their cars and ended up getting arrested, but he got a lot of money from it before he got caught. So John formed his own plan and he conned a struggling dealership and used credit of fake names and bought the cars that he made payments on. So the dealership believed him. So he continued to make payments on them. And so the dealership believed that, hey, these people actually bought these cars. When it didn't, he was just using false names. Oh. So they believed him up until he sold the cars and then the payment stopped coming in. So he sold the cars and made money off of it. And then the dealership's like, why did he stop paying all of a sudden? All these cars just got bought. Now, all of a sudden, nobody's paying anymore. So, oof. It worked for a while, but he got lazy and he ran the same scheme over and over and over again until he got caught. stupid. (laughs) He made thousands. He made thousands in 1934, and then he got arrested and went to prison. He wrote to his parents and his wife telling them that he's a changed man and that he's sorry and. He was trying to boohoo to the judge saying, oh, you know, I'm a struggling husband. and I lost my job and I'm not doing too well. And I'm, you know, a 24 year old that's struggling, you know, trying to gain empathy from the judge. Right. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Well, he wasn't in there that long. He got out of prison and he moved back in with his parents. He was doing so good. His parents gave him money and started a dry cleaning business. So the reason why he moved back in with his parents is because his parents believed his phony baloney garbage, but his wife didn't. And then she found out that she went with his kid. Mm -hmm. So when the baby was born, she gave the baby up for adoption and then turned around and divorced him. And we don't know anything about her. She just disappeared after that. Like nobody knows. She probably went on and lived her life, got away from that crazy guy. Glad she did though. Oof. So with this cleaning business, he had a partner. And Haig brought client, he brought the clients in. John brought the clients in, but he had a, you know, partner that did the back end. So the partner supported the money for the business. And Haig, he brought in the clients. So they were booming. They were doing good. But the problem was the business was doing really well. And then one day his partner was struck and killed by a car. Hmm. The business struggled and fell apart and he had to sell off all his assets and he was convinced that there was no justice in this world. He tried to find the legitimate success, but was punished for it. So he tried to do the right thing, but he just feels like he's keep getting punished for every time he tries to do something good. After the failure, he left his parents' house and moved to London and he began to be a chauffeur for the McSwans, which is a very wealthy family. And then he got somewhat close to their son, William. Well, he quit his job as their chauffeur, chauffeur, but made sure to stay in contact. The next scheme was he set up a fake law firm using an established firm's name and forged stock certifications and paperwork. So he made a fake firm that was named after one that was already established and actually was a real legitimate business that was making millions so he was pretty much faking it, which I don't know how. Nowadays, you wouldn't have been able to get away with that. But he would trick investors, and he would lower the stock under market value. So they couldn't say no. So he used a time principle, telling investors that his stock was in high demand and prices couldn't stay low forever. So he made that little time window for them. Then they'd give him the money. He would give them fake shares. And then he'd close his business and he would move on, do something else, open up another law firm, do the same thing, get the investors money, give them fake shares of the business and then close it down and move to another area. He did it so many times. It worked for a while, but then he got used to it and kept doing the same thing over and over again. And the police caught him and arrested him again. In 1939, he was caught and he had made 3,000 pounds. From his scheme, hmm. which today equivalents to two hundred and forty thousand dollars in U.S. money.
1: You imagine that's what the thirties too. Yep, that's a lot of money now. It's three thousand. Yeah, 000. three hundred thousand. Three
2: thousand pounds equals the two hundred and forty thousand. Like, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah. Sheesh. Imagine what two hundred and forty thousand would have been like back then. I mean, it's a lot now, but you'd be pretty much known as a millionaire. Having that type of money. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So when he got arrested, the court wasn't so easy on him this time. And he ended up getting four years of hard time in prison. Mm -hmm. He was so shocked and he thought he could sweet talk the judge, but it didn't happen. In prison, he was a big talker telling inmates he could scheme out old rich ladies out of their money. And his fellow inmates should think big and they should go and do what he was doing. Uh, Whatever. He, He was just a big talker is what the inmates would say. Just bragging about his schemes and how he got away with them and stuff like that. He kissed up to the guards and was on good behavior. But World War II broke out and desperate for help, the prisoners were let out early. Haig got out a year early. In 1940, at the age of 31, men were sent out to war, leaving their families behind. He talked his way into being a local fireman so he didn't have to go to war. Oh, okay.
0: 1941,
2: he got arrested. So that's what I didn't know. I didn't know the first time that he, because I was like, why didn't he go? If they were desperately needing people to be in the military, mm-hmm. why wasn't he drafted? Because he signed up to be a local fireman.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's how he got out of that. And I was like, you sly dog. Mm. Wow. But it didn't last long because in 1941, he got arrested for breaking and entering. He worked at the prison tin shop. And when he was at his cell, he would stare at the wall and think to himself, news ways of trying to get rich.
1: <laughs> yeah, it seem seem like he was constantly hands. scheming is what it seemed like money was, his, you know, driving force.
2: Yeah, so he would work at the tin shop, come back to his room, stare at the wall and just think of schemes all day long to try to get rich Uh, it's funny because they talk about that now like they call them quick rich schemes and they always say that like every time i watch a youtube video about finance or something they'd be like this is not a get rich quick scheme so Mm -hmm. it's like they're taking shots at him it's hilarious now to think about it Mm -hmm. he would go as far as holding other inmates letters hostage and charging an extra fee until he got in trouble
1: (laughs) He was scheming on them, too.
2: Wow. I'm surprised they didn't beat his freaking tail. hmm I mean, all they had to do was, like, just gang up on him. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. He's not that big of a dude, so Mm-mm. it wouldn't have been hard to beat him up, especially if there's more than one of them. Yeah. He got more time added to his sentence for his involvement. Well, he came up with a new scheme each week, but never thought about the long term of it. So he would think of a scheme do it, get caught each time because he just didn't come up with a scheme that would last long term at all. Haig failed and it pissed him off and he thought he was smarter than the guards and the warden. He vowed next time that his plan would be foolproof and the longer he thought about his plans, the darker they got. He realized every time he got caught there was someone around to tell on him. Mm Mm-hmm. He learned a lot about murder from his fellow inmates. But one thing he noticed wrong in their story was they always left evidence behind for the police. He believed if he came up with the way to get rid of the body and no evidence, then he would be unstoppable. No body, no evidence. And he could talk his way out of any situation. Yeah, he thought he was untouchable. Haig obsessed over the idea for months. And one day he was mixing chemicals for the prison tinsmith and he figured out what he needed. Sulfuric acid. (laughs) He offered inmates money who worked outside in the yard to bring him mice. No one knew why he wanted so many mice, but if prison taught him anything, it's to not ask too many questions. He smuggled the chemicals into his cell. (laughs) He loved watching the mice try to wiggle out of his hand, and he wondered what a human would be like fighting back. Hmm. The bodies in the sulfuric acid broke down and turned into a black mush, like a black soup, almost. He found out that after 30 minutes after the bodies have been decomposed, now he figured out the trick. It only takes 30 minutes to decompose altogether. So all he had to do was just wait out his time until he was able to get out of jail or prison. He just sat there and waited. His parents were shocked and ashamed of him that he would go and rip off the poor. He begged his parents for forgiveness and told them that their religious beliefs demand to give him a second chance. I don't know where he got demand from. He said he read the Bible in jail and that he saw the light. They believed him because they wanted nothing but the best for their son. And they wanted to be able to trust him and know that he was going to do the right thing. But all he was doing was giving him false hope once again. he he milked his parents all they could give him he moved back to london and he took a job as a salesman then he got himself an apartment then across town he got himself a basement at another apartment he installed a wooden bench and a 40 gallon drum in this basement so this basement was across town nowhere near where he was living He posed as an engineer or a scientist so he could get his hands on the chemicals that he needed. He would order small quantities Mm -hmm. so nobody would realize that he was actually going to be using it for humans. He was going to be using it for, you know, other experiments. So he would get small quantities because if he would go and get big quantities of this, then it would be like, oh, I caught you.
1: Yeah, somebody would catch on. Gotcha.
2: Gotcha. And that would not be cool at all. And August 1944, when Hagen was 30, Hague, I'm just going to call him John, was 35 years old. He was walking around the pub. He was looking for his first victim. But he was specifically looking for a rich person, which he remembered. McSwan was the guy that he was friends with that always went to this pub called The Goat. So he spotted him and he watched him creepy. So after some time, he accidentally bumped into William like, oh, it's good to see you. You know, stupid. (laughs) He bumped into William and he started catching up and they got super close within two weeks. William was telling John that he just didn't want to go to the military and that he was scared because he didn't want to go to war and die, which. I feel the same way. I wouldn't want to go to war and die either because he had no other chance, no other choice. Right. So he begged John like, Hey, can you find somewhere to hide me? Can you find me somewhere to take so I could like wait out? And John said, yeah, I'll take you somewhere where you can hide out until the war's over with. And he said that he would help him and that he would, be in charge of his financial situation and his checkbook. He agreed, and then they met up with his parents and told them the plan and that he wouldn't be talking to them or they wouldn't be hearing from him for a while. It only made it easier for John, a lot easier for him. So in August 1944, he took William to his basement. As William was crouched over, looking at his tool, He hit him over the head three times and killed him instantly. So William was a little bit suspicious. Like, oh, why are we in this dark-ass basement? Like, kind of a little bit suspicious. But, you know, he trusted his friend. He thought John was his friend and Hmm. led up to his death. So that's sad. That's really sad. As he was laying on the ground, John was a little shaken up, but he had to get to work. He stole his watch and wallet and he felt fear and adrenaline. And he had a flashback of that nightmare. He made a small cut in the back of William's neck and he filled the cup with the blood. And with the evil grin, he drank it all.
1: Now, that right there, that's not confirmed, though, right? That he was drinking the blood of their victims. That's just no. what he said, right? Okay.
2: No one knows if it's true because later on when he got arrested, he admitted to like two other murders that they never could find, figure out. He mm-hmm. said one of the guys was named Max and like nobody could find Max at all. And then he had another one where he said it was a woman, but he couldn't come up with a real good story about her. So they're like, this dude's fabricating. So they don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. Sounds like something that came out of a movie. Yeah. Cut the back of his neck, filled the cup up. As I looked at the camera that was across from the body, I gave it evil grin and just drank it. Like, come on, man. That don't sound that sounds fabricated as hell. Yeah. You know.
1: So who knows about that part of it, but yeah.
2: Well, he put William in the drum and he closed the top of it and he waited overnight for the results. He was too eager to sleep. So he was pacing back and forth until morning. He opened the barrel and saw black sludge, and it smelled like rotten eggs and death. He stirred the body, and it came to his surprise, it not dissolved. It still had fat and bones, but he ran out of time, and he dragged the drum outside into the backyard, looked around and made sure nobody was around, and he dumped the drum in the yard and carried the drum back inside. So that was kind of dumb of him, regardless of where he's at taking the drum outside even though it still has fat in it and bones yeah it didn't dissolve all day so he was like i ran out of time but i don't know what he means about running out of time i mean nobody is coming into your basement i guess when it came to the financial situation i don't know because the war wasn't close to being ending yet so i don't know what he was in such a big hurry for to dump it he could have waited a few more hours or a day or so who knows so after that, he would actually write letters to William's parents, and he would actually write letters to his friends as well. He got so good at forging William's handwriting that nobody knew that it was John actually writing these letters. He went as far as going to Scotland and actually writing letters from Scotland and sending them back to London just to, just to try to keep up the rouge. And I'm thinking, whoa, like that's crazy. So he ended up being able to forge a signature to the the point where he got all his money. He got all his tenants. So what a lot of people don't know is William actually had his own apartment complex where he was paying, like he, you know, people were paying him. He was their landlord. Mm -hmm. And so all that money that was going to William was actually going to John instead now. So everything William had, John now owns.
1: Wow. So, and so wild. everybody thinks that he's just off on vacation, not trying to avoid going and being um, sent to war, but he's really dead.
2: Yep. And okay. he kind of said it, William kind of set himself up for that because mm-hmm. he trusted John, but he told his parents, oh, I'm going into hiding and y'all are not going to hear from me for a while. Right. And then John's going to be in charge of my checkbook and my financials.
1: Yeah. People are very trusting. Very trusting.
2: John's going to have my car keys, too. And he's going to take care of my kids and wife. He's going to, you know, take. I mean, God forbid, dude. What else are you going to give the man? And I, might as well. here, John, take my T-shirt while you're at it.
1: That victim made it super easy on him.
2: <laughs> very easy. He's probably the easiest. All the other serial killers are probably sitting out. there jealous but so he brought it back in there. And so he was writing some letters to William's family. Well, he started gambling his money and he started getting low on the money. So he came up with the plan. One night he wrote William's parents a letter saying that he would like to see them. The war wasn't always uh, almost over yet, but he said that he was back and that he was hiding and that this is his location and that they should come and see him Hmm. so they believed it so they show up at the basement not knowing they're standing outside and john tells them hey we have to go in one at a time well they're actually nice donald and amy actually like william you know he was their chauffeur they thought he was a great guy he was friends with william he's gone as far as you know being there with William when William was telling his parents that he wasn't going to be around and that they wouldn't be able to contact him. So they trusted him. They thought he was a great guy. So Donald goes into the basement and he's right behind him. Well, he shuts the door and he doesn't give Donald time to really think about anything. And he picks up another weapon and he shoves it right into the back of his skull.
0: Hmm.
2: And ended up killing Donald and he fell on the ground. Well, he was trying not to make a lot of noise. So he grabbed Donald and he slid him over away from the door. And so he was like, all right, Amy's next. So he went out there, brought her in, boom. I think he shot her or hit her over the head, one of the two, but he took care of her as well. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Well, what he figured out from his last mistake, that he needed more than just sulfuric acid. So he had hydrogen, I think, hydrogen, Hydrogen chloride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, So
1: hydrochloric acid and hydrochloric. Yeah. Sulfuric acid. So you combine those two then instead of just doing sulfuric. Okay.
2: Yes. And it actually worked a lot better.
1: (laughs) Wow.
2: And what I mean by that is John actually before he, he committed this crime, he went and got, you know, like a mask gloves Took off all his clothes and put like a a, uh, scuba dive and swimsuit on. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that's going to prevent him from getting acid on him, but okay.
1: Safety first, right?
2: (laughs) I mean, it could eat through your swimsuit and into your skin, but whatever. I could see if it was like DNA, but whatever. And so this time around, he cut both of the bodies up. He cut both of the bodies up. And he took him, he said it took him a while, you know, cutting the bone along with the muscle and just separating it. So he took it and he put it into the the barrel, the drum, whatever you want to call it. And he had both of them mixed in there. Well, he waited, waited, waited. The next day he came back and looked at it. It was nothing but black soup. And he just... Stirred it like he did with William. But this time around, there was no fat or bone left over. It was just all liquid. So he took the drum and he had a drain. And he just poured all the black liquid down the drain. Easiest crime he's committed so far when it comes to disposing. William was the easiest. But as far as, you know, disposing the body, that was his best one so far.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Oh, he went to this law firm in another place and told them that he was william and so his parents had died and so all their fortune had came to him so he ended up getting himself a place an onslow hotel well he would tell you know other people including you know amy's brother that they went on vacation that they went to america and that's why they're not here so he would write letters pretending to be them and sending it off to family saying, Hey, we went to America. We don't know when we're going to be back.
0: Hmm.
2: It made her brother a little bit suspicious at first, but then, you know, after a little bit of convincing over time, it was like, Hey, you know, I trust you now, John, whatever. Cause he was good at talking people over, but this guy had to take a little bit more time. So I think, yeah. Yeah, I think it was either them or the next people. I think, no, 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 sorry. They didn't have a brother, but they did write to the family. I'm talking about the next victims, my bad. So after he got done with them, he ended up getting himself another property. Not only he was living in the Onslow Hotel, which is a luxury hotel, he actually got himself another, excuse me, a building that's in the projects that was ran down. So this time around... He invested the money into more things, not only the equipment, like the drums. He got two drums instead. He got like this pump that goes into the tub so it doesn't splash out. He also had, you know, the gear that he wears, like the swimsuit, the gloves, the mask, so he doesn't breathe in anything. You know, right? what is that thing called? The chemicals. Oh, forgot the word for a moment. Yeah. So he got the chemicals. So he was taking it a step further. There was only one problem, though. He didn't have a drain like he did in the other building. Should have thought about that before he bought the property. So while he was walking around the hotel, he ran across a guy, doctor and Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Henderson. He was thinking about buying their property, but it ended up falling through and somebody else bought it. Well, the problem with John was he had money, but he kept blowing it by gambling and he was getting behind on his bills. The hotel would send him like, Hey, you didn't pay this month. He'd get behind every month. And then he finally paid it. Well, they ended up going to this resort, the three of them to have a little vacation because even though the house fell through, they continued to want to stay friends with John So even though all of that fell through, they invited him to join them to their short break in Brighton. It was a resort. Well, they were there enjoying their time. And John saw that Mr. Henderson needed a break from his wife. So he took the opportunity. He said, hey, why don't you come see this new building that I am investing in that I'm going to turn into something else? Mm -hmm. And so he said, it's only 20 miles away. Them being the rich, famous people that like to, you know, put in the work. And he believed them, got in the car, drove there. But for some reason, Mr. Henderson did not have that moment of, holy crap, where did he just take me? Because he completely went a whole different direction than where he was saying he was going to take him. So obviously he didn't see the first red flag. Second, the building is kind of like old and it has like a crappy fence around it. But he just didn't care because he trusted John, same way William and his parents did. So they brought him. He went into the house. And when he went into the house, he closed the door behind him and he pulled a revolver out and shot Mr. Henderson in the back of the head, killing him. Mm. Well, he didn't have time to dismember him because his wife is going to be wondering where the heck is he at and where he's been. So he had to make it quick. He just dumped the body into the drum. And he said, I have to go back and get her. So he went back to the hotel and knocked on the hotel door and he told her, hey, come with me. Your husband all of a sudden just came down with the illness. He didn't want to make her too frantic, but enough for her to come with him. Right. If you know what I mean. So she goes with them and they get in the car and they drive there instead of, you know, telling her. Heard the same thing he was telling him in the car, like, oh, look at all these business ideas we can do, blah, blah, blah. How great this is going to be. We're going to make a lot of money. This time he was just trying to calm her down. It's okay. Everything is going to be all right. Just trying to make her feel better and ease the anxiety and, you know, the sadness that she was feeling in her heart. So she walked in the house, you know, too frantic to even realize that she's being set up. Walks in the house, closes the door behind him shoots her in the back of the head as well. And then he puts her also into the drum or I think they had him in the tub. One of the two, I think this time around it was a drum and a tub. So he had them, but the problem was they also weren't breaking down, but then they finally were breaking down and he kind of rushed it a little bit. I think there was some fat and some bones still left over. If not, I think they were black soup as well, but there was no drain for him to dump the bodies down. So he ended up dragging the drum and took it out back back like he did at the other place. And he dumped them in the backyard. Foolish. So he takes the drum back inside, leaves it in this building, and then he goes back and enjoys his rest of the time at the hotel. And then he goes back to the onslaught hotel where he was at, and then he runs into this lady. So, he ends up getting the money off of them, too. I don't know how he went about getting it, but he ended up making the money off of them as well. I think he stole some of their stuff as well. So, he was able to collect the money that they had and turn it into his. (laughs) So, he ended up meeting a 69-year-old lady who at first did not want to speak to him because she didn't think that he was rich enough for her. And that was a big mistake because he was indeed not rich enough for her, but at the same time, he was rich enough to be around them people. And since he was the youngest guy there, you know, because most people weren't rich and famous around his age, especially in that time period. So everybody was, Oh, he's so great. We love him. Oh my God. What's it like to be a billionaire at this age? You know, those people. So he ran into this colonial widow named Olive ran deacon well he already had the audacity to try to sell her some crocodile skin handbags for like 10 pounds i don't know how much that is in american money to be honest with you he was hatching a plan to get his hands on her assets which was like a thousand pounds don't know how much that is but it's a thousand pound year income so every year he would be getting a thousand pounds well she came up with the business idea because he told her that he was an engineer. So she was like, well, I want to start up a, I think a nail polish or nails, like those nails that you put on. Mm-hmm. I want to start that type of business. I have the idea and the money. <clears throat> you are a manufacturer. You make it. I'll put the money behind it and be the face of it and sell it. We make millions. He's thought, great idea. Let me show you where my building is. She was like, okay. So she told her friends she was going with him. Smart move. So everybody there knew of him. So she ended up getting herself all dressed nice, got the pearls around her neck, making herself look good. He drove her there. She realized the building was ran out. She was like, heck, a little suspicious. She went inside, popped her with the revolver as well. And so he ended up putting her in the drum, trying to dissolve her as well. Mm. But the problem is, this time around, somebody knew that she was with him. So when he came back to the hotel, because once he got back to the hotel, somebody told him, hey, the police are looking for you, man. You're in questioning. Mm -hmm. Because they were worried about Alice, Olive, whatever her name is that she wasn't getting back to them and that she's been gone for a while. And why is he back? But she's not right. He could have ran. If he would have ran, he would have gotten away to be honest, but he was confident that he could sweet talk his way out of it. And so her friend actually wanted to go to the police station to actually file a report about her missing. And so he thought, Oh, I'm going to go with her to try to like fly under the radar so I don't get in trouble. (laughs) Well, it was at the police station. They recognize him and they know him from his history, not only from what he did from being a con artist, but also from him being behind his payments at this hotel. Hmm. So they ended up arresting him. (laughs) And he ends up saying the stupidest thing in the world How can you prove? that I killed her because I put her in acid, her body dissolved and I poured her behind the house, dumped her.
1: So he probably thought because there was no evidence that, you know, he could say whatever he wanted to, and there wasn't anything they could do, but I don't think I would have offered up that much information. He was very cocky. (laughs) You know what I mean?
2: The narcissism and the tension that he wanted. And I'm, I see a picture right now. There's like three or four people crouched down behind this old house and there's no like basement. It's like sitting on wood. So there's like wood planks coming down and then you can reach in between them. So he dumped them back there, like a fool and telling that's telling them that information was really, really dumb, to be honest with you. And so he says to an officer, he looks at him and he asks him, Hey, what is the chances of a mental patient getting out of psychiatric hospital? Yeah, because he didn't want to go to jail. He was going to try to pretend to be mentally ill. Right. And then after a while, do some tests and then they're like, oh, he's good to go. And then let him go as a free man. Nowadays, that don't work. If you commit a crime and you get put in a psychiatric hospital and they deem that you're sane, your butt's going back to court and they're going to charge you for whatever you did and your ass is going to jail. Back then, it was different.
1: Well, it also incriminated him too. I mean, why would you ask that if you weren't, if you were, you know, innocent? So,
2: because they asked him what happened to Miss Allison, and he just like bragged about it, and he took her purse and he buried it on the edge of the property, so nobody could find it. But they found it. Everything he was trying to hide, they found. Yeah, he ended up being convicted for all these murders because he ended up blabbing his mouth because obviously he loved the the attention. He loved the press. He loved everything about the whole situation. He was finally being recognized and respected for his work and that's what he wanted. So at the end of his life, they ended up actually taking him to the gallows and they hung him in public. So for a guy who was, loving the attention he died alone sad so his death well he got some attention because
1: the gallows are basically i think they're public hanging so he got some attention for sure so i know you're probably going to talk about i mean you've covered a lot of stuff that a lot of people didn't know because i never even heard of him before but um i was reading up on him because like i said I, i never heard of him and they said that he was actually killed by an executioner who was um very well known did you know about this his name was albert pierre point he was an executioner in the day um and he actually executed 400 to 550 criminals a lot of them being like high profile killers um blackout ripper which i've never heard of the rillington place strangler and the blackpool poisoner they they were all some of the people that this um executioner actually, you know, killed or hung or whatever during that time. So that's something else. So that dude, he was actually killed by somebody more well-known than he was. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty wow. neat. So that guy was, was well-known for, you know, putting a lot of people to death. That's a that's a kind of a bad job, I would think, but they didn't, I guess, during that time period. We're talking about what, England to the UK or something, and that's where this where was at. So. Yeah. Yeah. He was a very... Well, um well-known executioner so i mean that's not even really a job now except for like lethal injection and stuff and that that person is not well known of course you know it's that that information is like you know kept private so but yeah i thought that was pretty neat pierre what's the guy's name It's funny pierre point this is his last name <laughs> these names trip me out but Go ahead. I just thought I'd throw that in there with the execution. I like dang. I mean, he's talking about he wanted attention hanging from the gallows is a way to get it because you, you, I mean, I don't think you're hung for a second. I think they have to leave you hanging there for a while. I mean, they want to be so. It, there's be a few good,
2: yeah, they want to make an example out of you. Mm-hmm. So, there's a few, little bit of information that was one of them I didn't know. Fun facts, I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know how fun they are,
1: but they're definitely facts and (laughs) definitely interesting. Wasn't fun Fun for him. Fun facts for
2: the public. Yeah, it It was fun for him. Fun for the public. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: John had like took Donald, which is William's dad. He had like shaved his skull and then with the, he actually shaved the skull and then turned it into a pin table leg. What? Which, so he, he was building a table, like a workshop table. <laughs> yeah. And he took Donald's skull and shaved it into a leg and made it part of his table. Like a
1: table. Whoa, that's crazy. Hmm.
2: And then he just dissolved the rest of the body. <laughs> Gosh. I didn't know that. I was like, oof, that's a little bit too much in my opinion.
0: Yes. And
2: with the when it comes to the woman, the uh what was her name? Miss Deacon? Mm-hmm. Olive. Yeah. yeah. He claimed in his letter when he was in prison that he was writing that he had stamped a widow and crucifixed into the earth. No, he took her, uh, the widow, she was widow, I guess. He took the crucifix that she had and he stomped it into the earth before he slit her throat
1: uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: with the pen knife and gorged himself with her blood.
1: Yeah, which we're not 100% sure
2: if that happened as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because that was part of his, and that's a, this is another fact, too, I was reading, that he come up with this insanity plea and this drinking of the blood. He came up with that right during his trial to try to get them to send him to a hospital instead of, you know, hanging him. So it was like a last-ditch effort to say, I'm insane. I drank their blood, and that was what he he did. In fact, he went on to, like, um, talk about that same forest with the oozing blood that you were talking about he tells that same thing um to the court and a courts, the courts like don't listen to him and tells the jury just to reject his insanity defense and it, it said it only took the jury 15 minutes to say he was guilty so it was pretty quick but that was all I think I mean we there's no way of knowing other than his word that he actually did that stuff but I think it was to make him look like he was Crazy, you know, during that time period. So I guess say he's he's mentally ill instead of, you know, deserves to die. So that's something.
2: He actually uh, had a few psychologists and psychiatrists look over him, and they all deemed him deemed him sane. So it didn't yeah. help his case not one bit.
1: No, and the fact it only took them fifteen minutes. I've never heard of a uh, someone being found guilty that quickly. You know, you were talking about Olive the Olive Duran Deacon or whatever her name was um his I guess his final victim it's even back in the day talking about making mistakes they had evidence against him it said um I was reading on um hardcore true crime and they actually have some cool you know things too that we could add but this one says they found a dry cleaning receipt for her fur coat so he actually got it cleaned they found 28 pounds of human body fat part of her foot a gallstone And a portion of her denture. So obviously, certain things don't dissolve. I mean, I don't know what part of her foot was that, you know, what part of it was, but a gallstone is something you get in your gallbladder and it's like a, I think it's a calcium deposit. It's really hard. And then a portion of her denture, who knows what the dentures were they, were they wooden? What were they even made of back then? So those things obviously did not completely dissolve in the acid bath. And he he didn't know that, but that's how they got him for that. you know, with that evidence. Excuse me. Her
2: teeth doesn't really dissolve. Yeah, that must be because it's sure. a
1: part of her dentures. Well, she had dentures. Maybe her teeth did, but the dentures didn't. So, that's crazy.
0: But, yeah, yeah. Maybe she was a heavy he,
1: set. There's 25 pounds of fat. It's a lot left sheesh. over. <laughs> Good
2: God! And he was Russian, which was kind of dumb. You couldn't yeah. have picked somebody else. Oh, you he mean, just wanted her wealth.
1: Yeah, you mean hurrying he, um, yeah he was
2: hurrying like oh, okay because everybody knew at the hotel that she's been missing mm-hmm. and he wanted to hurry up and get back there and try to be like oh i'll help you guys search for her even though he left with her Hmm.
0: Huh. yeah
2: dumb cool well i don't know if he was in the hotel and like everybody saw her walking with him
1: yeah but she did tell that one friend by herself but she did tell that one friend that's all it takes you know and that's the friend that was probably going to to report her (laughs) missing so
2: and the problem is he walked around the hotel and introduced himself to everybody
1: yeah Mm, probably not the best idea
2: so everybody knew his name and face Mm -hmm. and since he said his real name and they had a face the police was already like oh him yeah we know who he is yeah easy Mm -hmm. so he had like these bizarre requests, like several of them. I mean, he would talk about he would soon be immortalized as a wax work in Madame Tussaudy oh. Chamber of Horrors.
1: Okay, so that's the actual place in London, England. Um, it's like they have, yeah. Okay, so basically, is they do wax figures of people that are like well known, or you know, like something. I guess because he's a serial killer he was actually put there so he agreed to like um, be put there but he did tell her and this I'm sure you were going to talk about that he left his clothes to her but he told her that if he was going to be a wax figure so they make a a figure out of wax it's a human-sized figure they put the clothes on it and they actually have that person um, do a mask like a, a molded Uh, facial thing of it, so they can make sure that it's perfect. They're used to, there's several um, wax museums, but this is the one that's in London, England, and they, it's creepy walking through there. They look just like the people standing there, but they're made of wax. Um, So what he did say, though, and this is kind of I guess this kind of goes to show how he was. He said that he didn't mind being in the wax museum after he died, but that she needed to make sure that his clothes were always nice looking and that his trousers were creased and his, his um, hair was neatly parted. So he didn't mind yeah. being like a, <laughs> he didn't mind being in her, the max, the wax museum. He just wanted to make sure he was looking good while he was doing it. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what a, what a person worry about something like that. And you're going to be put to death. But that museum actually closed up, I think, in 2016 or something. So that's sad. I don't know whatever happened. I'm sure people were probably buying off her wax figures, but I've been to one in the US and I can't remember where it's at, if it was DC or New York or somewhere. But I remember they had like wax figures of like Michael Jackson, people that were still alive. But when you walk up there, it's super creepy because it looks like they're just standing there and it's really them. So I don't are know that they using
2: I, them or they just made like wax figures of them.
1: They just make wax figures. So they have someone like sculpt them out of wax and then they have that person um, like they take something t- to get a mold of their face so that that's very detailed. And then they usually get clothing from them or they dress um, them in clothing that looks like something they would wear so that you're able to recognize them. But no, it's a wax figure.
2: Yeah. yeah, he wanted them to put the ones that he was wearing throughout his trial, which was like his green hopsack suit, like green socks, red tie with the green squares.
1: Yeah, he wanted to look dapper. And of I guess. course, with the trouser. Uh-huh. That's
2: ugly. Who would want those type of freaking colors? Well, yeah. that's because he's it's be in a 30s. Groundhog's Day. I mean, uh, St. Patrick's Day, wearing mm-hmm. all green.
1: I don't know. I guess it was a style I was Trousers the to end. be pressed. Yeah.
2: But they ended up granting his wish after he was executed. So they actually did it.
1: Until 2016, when the place was closed up. We don't know what happened to it. It'd be nice to know what happened to it. Did someone buy it? It's like standing in someone's living room right now. Who knows? Yeah. Hello,
2: John. It's mm-hmm. good to see you again.
1: And your hair looks nicely potted. Yeah.
2: They have like a cauldron, a cauldron and they have them sitting in it. How's mm-hmm. it feel, John, to be an acid bath yourself?
1: Mm-hmm yeah that's crazy that's that's all i
2: got for him
1: yeah that's another fact that i thought was like crazy that somebody would want to i mean he must be pretty well known um oh okay and so the um the name of i guess they have an exhibition at that place and they call it the chamber of horrors and that's where he was it wasn't like he was like 10 most you know influential people or something like that this was like you're in the chamber of horror so i don't really think that that's that big of a a thing to be proud of you know (laughs) so that's crazy but yeah it's kind of um the acid bath killer you know and oh i I meant to i remember there was actually and you might know this um man from before so he um so he actually was when he was in prison, you were talking about how he was always scheming. It did say, and I don't know if he told him this or what, but in prison, he was studying the murder methods of a French killer named George Alexandre Sarat, who also dissolved his victims in sulfuric acid. So he was really, other than just doing the mice thing and all this other stuff, he was looking into other serial killers and doing his research. So whoever this other guy is, it was French. Georges alexandra Saret. he had done it before um before george so that's mm. yeah he wasn't the first it was like a copycat um serial murder but yeah he did his research Yikes. i give him that much so. And he
2: did a good job of it i mean he even it was an estimate that he made like four thousand pounds which was a lot of money in the post-war britain off of the McSwan, McSwan family and even forged papers, which gave him power of authority so he was able to sell off their property as well.
1: Well, the the thing is, is he could have done that. He was able to do that during those times, but these days, no one would believe him. Plus there's so many different ways of of knowing things and keeping up with people. There's no way he would have gotten away with that now saying I'm, I'm this person and I'm, they, they're not here now. They wrote a letter or, you know what I mean? They'd have to have proof. So but yeah,
2: a lot of more, a lot more proof now.
1: Yeah. All right, you guys. Well, this coming Saturday, I guess we're also going to do two other two new ones. So please stay tuned for our other um, podcasts and we're going to feature two other serial killers. We're not exactly a hundred percent, which so many to choose from. We're always trying to narrow it down. So yeah, not really sure who we're going to do yet, but if you stay tuned, you'll definitely find out.
2: Good news is we won't run out for a
1: while. No, definitely not. Definitely not.
2: Hey, everybody. This is Future Nick here editing this, and I completely forgot to put my resources up there that I found this information from. The first one was from a podcast called The Serial Killer Podcast, and the next little bit of information I got was from a book called The Visual Encyclopedia of Serial Killers from Nigel Blundale and Susan Blackwall. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Back to it. So... I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast and make sure to come back next Saturday.
1: All right. We'll see you guys next Saturday.
2: We got a killer secret for you. All
1: right. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye. Bye.